We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two-part interview. The first part was released last week in our previous episode of Encountering Silence. Caitlin, I'm I'm somebody who has, you know, been very much interested in indigenous spirituality speaking kind of on a global sense. Um, McColman is a Scottish name. So as you can oh, imagine, okay. you yeah. know, that's that's why, yeah, yeah, pagan is not a dirty word here, you know, because yeah. I'm very much interested in indigenous Celtic spirituality. And again, the conversation that it might have with Christianity or with Buddhism yeah. or whatever. But here's a question that I want. I want to ask you, as somebody of European descent, I think there certainly has been an issue of white appropriation mm-hmm. of Native practices. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm just curious what you might want to say to, you know, to people who are Caucasian, uh, how we can begin to be in conversation or in dialogue with indigenous spiritual wisdom keepers and and those practices without just bringing another layer of colonization right. or cultural appropriation into the conversation. Yeah, I mean, this is such a hard topic. And again, one where I don't know what the right answers are. I just know what I can offer. But, and, and it's interesting because you can, you can go on to like native Twitter, you can ask different indigenous people and they will, you will get different answers across the board is a, you know, the teepee from Pottery Barn in your kid's room appropriation or not, is the pillow at Target that's stolen from Indigenous artists' designs, like, is that appropriation or not? So there's just, you could ask different people and they'll give you so many different answers. If you're going to approach another culture, that there is this sense of actually being humble and just listening. And I think in Western thought and because of white supremacy, there's just kind of this, like, I like that, so I'm going to take it and I'm going to use it that sounds great, you know, and then no one, and no one ever questions it. And I think that that's just happened for so long that that becomes the norm a lot of times. So sometimes the sort of inner spiritual places are like you said, they're full of appropriation. We're just grabbing things. And like, that sounds good from Buddhism. Oh, that sounds good from all. I want to smudge like that too. And so then we buy these smudge kits from places like Sephora did like a witch kit last year and they were taking sacred sage and packaging it you know and and it's hard to explain that but like that destroys what sage is it's a sacred medicine for us and you're you're taking something that is endangered in parts of america so you you know just things like that like if you're i think i feel like it's like anything you know this has happened with yoga you know when you take a spiritual practice and you create it into a product and you you know make it into this consumer product it I don't know I just think that that damages what you're trying to do and it um, can be really dangerous and so in my mind that's where appropriation can be dangerous and um, I think there just has to be this spirit of listening because for so long the church has approached at least the church has approached indigenous people to change us or to get 
to make us better because somehow we're just not there. And there has to be a different kind of relationship. And I, in my mind, it has to start with a listening and a, and a humble, you know, my book may be the first book that so many Christians have read from an indigenous perspective. And so I know that it can be jolting and it's just my, it's just my experience and my stories, you know, you'll get different experiences from different people, but I think there has to be a willingness to just listen for a long time before you try to act on anything. And I think we just, we like to act quickly and not listen fully. Yeah. And it's hard because for those of us who really do love the dialogue, you know, as Carl said, and I'm, I try to, because I love the comparative method is the way I've been trained and the way I think and the way I, so I want to go into these spaces and say, listen, I want to learn tell me, teach me. And then I often know that these aren't just ideas, they're practices. These are ways of life. These are embody entire peoples and it's their soul being offered to me in ritual and and word and everything else. And yet it's this hard balance of sometimes you can't, I, when I tell my students, you can't understand these traditions unless you're actually kind of practicing them. And yet Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not going, if you come into my class, I am not going to teach you the practices of this tradition because I'm not of that tradition. So there's only so much you can learn, you know, so I try to invite people in of the culture that can, but sometimes there's, there's not, I don't have anyone I can invite in and then you're in this place. And yeah. And with indigenous culture, you know, there's often this um, romanticism of it, the mystic shaman. Right. And then at the same time, then once, then people want to become indigenous, but then they don't want our trauma, you know, well, you're going to get all of us. Like this is all of us. You know, we, we have our shamans, we have our wise sages. And then we also are just normal people who do stuff like, you know, people don't, they want to romanticize certain things and then they want to hate the other things. And so it's always a really interesting balance between those things. Yeah. Well, we do it with everything. Like you said at the beginning, we do it with everything. We do it with ourselves, you know, our own voices we silence and romanticize and we just do it. Caitlin, I'm really struck by just the way, I know we've talked about erasure and toxic silence. Um, In your book, you talk about hearing little mention of communicating with God through the earth in churches. And when you talked about that jolt that people might feel reading your book or hearing these kinds of things, I just think that jolt is so incredibly important, right? To jolt us out of these false safety and comfort that exists when we're existing in places that are covering up so much truth mm-hmm. um, and so much ancient wisdom. And, you know, I'm 36. And the first time I heard a land acknowledgement at a church was five years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's just that, blew my mind. And along with that, I wonder if you could speak to how we silence the earth and how that can ultimately guide us to, to more wisdom. I mean, just the way we're, we're treating the earth right now and how that can also lead us into more, more insight in, in all of our faith. Yeah. I think that universally as, as humans, we belong to the earth. And it's not like indigenous people are the only people who can connect to mother nature. But I think that sometimes people may feel that way. But I think that as children, we are born with this longing to connect to the earth, you know, the the dust to dust idea. 
that we, when we are young, we have these mystical, magical moments with the earth, with bugs and with flowers and trees and the sky. And I think that's a natural part of being human. And I think it gets rooted out of all of us at some point in childhood, if it's through trauma or through religion or through whatever it is, moving to a city where there's nothing there to, to connect with, whatever it is. I think that we lose that connection. So for me, I think I lost that at one point and now I'm trying, finding my way back again. So there's like this childlikeness with me. And I feel like I've barely even scratched the surface of understanding the earth or communicating with her. And so I, I try to, uh, when I'm teaching on it or doing things, I learned so much from uh, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's also Potawatomi. Her book is just gorgeous. And I tell everyone to read it, everyone. And it's also that kind of humble pulling people in and just saying, how can you love yourself and love the earth better? And so sometimes like recently I, I led a seminar uh, during this, during COVID, it was a zoom seminar and I had people write a letter to mother earth. We call her Sagamakwe in Potawatomi, write a letter to the earth and just talk to her, tell her what, what's hurting in you. And, you know, and one of the things that I, I started worrying about was when there was a shortage of toilet paper I started thinking about trees and all these paper products that were now like like you know just rushing to buy because people are buying so much toilet paper well how, we make that with paper and you know I just like it was I don't even know how it all works I wanted to look up like how does a toilet paper factory make toilet you know how does it happen down the line because I just started worrying about trees because we think about ourselves so if people are out of toilet paper, like, okay, like go do the thing we need to do to get more, which is, I'm thinking in my mind, go cut down more trees so we can get the paper we need and the paper products. And I just, you know, those things where it's like, are we, are we considering what kind of people will be like on the other side of this? And the whole part of that we miss in the church, this individualism that we grow up with, you know, this communal aspect of being part of a culture it's like we we want community so badly but then we are in this these little individual boxes somehow um, in Christianity a lot of the time and so in western Christianity and American Christianity so what would it look like to actually practice this communal way of being well to do that you have to be aware of the way your life impacts the earth and the creatures and you know look at an ant differently and look at every animal differently and look at them like a child would before we're taught to hate them or to think they're, I don't know. I just think that we have to um, like almost like take ourselves back to our childlikeness. And a lot of people don't want to do that, but I think that it's sometimes really necessary to help us imagine a new way of belonging and reciprocity with the earth. Caitlin, you mentioned Robin Kimmerer. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about Richard Twist, who I met at the mm. first Wild Goose Festival. Oh, really? I'm, yes, yes. Our, our, I tell you, talk about a one, I'm going to name drop now. Talk about a wonderful moment. My tent, I was in the speaker section. So my tent, I had Peter Rollins on one side, Brian McLaren on the other side, and Richard Twist on the other. Aww, so it was just such amazing. a great experience. And yeah, yeah. But um, that's the magic of the Wild Goose Festival. Yeah. But my question for you is, we're all book nerds here on this podcast. So I'm wondering who, who you could refer us to in terms of maybe your heroes 
we always ask who's your silence hero, and that could be part of this question, but also who are your heroes in terms of finding your voice as an indigenous writer and touching on some of these topics that we have related to. So a lot of times on Twitter and online, people will come to me and ask me to give them a list of native theologians. And that question always bothers me because they want Christian native people. They want to read their stuff. And I feel like if you want to actively decolonize and work toward that, you need to just read anyone. Like you don't need to just read native theologians who are Christian or that you think are Christian that would fit the box that you're looking for. So on my website, I made two different basically lists of indigenous authors that people should read. And some of them are Christian. Most of them are not because I, I just want people to read. If you want to learn about indigenous culture, you need to read anyone that's willing to write a book about it, you know? So native, I, I wanted to fill it with mostly indigenous authors and just across the spectrum because I'm learning from them across the spectrum. And um, I think people just need to have the wide range of everything. So anyway, uh, one book that I've been reading so slowly because it just like, I read a page and then I think on it for hours is um, Women Who Run With the Wolves by Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And I just, I've still barely gone through it. It's so good. It's so good. And, and it just kind of rips your world apart every time. So that one is one that I've loved. And I've been reading uh, during this, the pandemic, um, Richard Wagamese has a book called One Story, One Song, I believe is the name, but it's essays. It's just beautiful, short essays on, you know, belonging and nature and all these things. And it's just really uh, grounds me every time. And then Robin's book. So those are kind of three that, you know, for me right now, that are ones that I just come back to a lot when I'm in between other books. Those are ones that I just come back to, to kind of help me keep going and continuing on the journey. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. Well, Caitlin, you are a poet. And I was wondering, we love poetry on here. I was wondering if you might share one of your poems with us. Yeah, I actually have my book with me. Um, I'll read one of the, the poems from the book. I have written poetry since I was little, but I don't necessarily want to just write a book of poetry. And so I'm really grateful that my publisher lets me just stick poems into my book randomly. <laughs> I was like, I need to do this. And they said, okay. So this is in a chap from chapter 10 of the book and it's the chapter is called ancestors. So it's about, you know, this idea of, you know, we are going to be ancestors one day and what kind of ancestors will we be to our children and our grandchildren and whoever comes after us. Um, so this is a poem I wrote about, it's kind of a letter to my ancestors. Passed on one. I see you there. Not your skin and bones, 
nor the frame that once held you. I see your aura, your spirit, your essence. I see the glow of who you once were and who you are today. I see somehow the imprint of what you've left me here. It's not a thumbprint, but some other form of spirit code. Somehow, the shape of you carves lines into the essence of who I am. Somehow, I am enough because you were enough. Ancestor, your name will always be the sound of breath in my lungs. Ancestor, your face will always look like the face of my own children. Ancestor, your essence will always feel like the wind when it slips through the tree branches singing a song. You, dear one, lead me still. I feel the gifts you've given me, and I wonder how much more is waiting. I learn my own way as I reckon with your mistakes and realize that you were human once, like I am human now. I wonder how much you notice from the other side. What does God feel like? I'll wait, and one day you'll show me. I'd like to cycle back to language briefly. Um, it really moved me when you spoke of how meaningful it was for you to hear and then to speak prayer in your ancestral language. Mm -hmm. And you remind me just to speak personally. So, you know, my ancestral language is Gaelic. Mm -hmm. And my great grandfather spoke Gaelic, but my grandfather didn't. You know, so it was lost about three generations ago. And I've, I've studied just a little bit. You know, I know just enough to be dangerous. But uh, the first time I was in Ireland, I, I spent some time with a, with a Gaelic language activist. Irish Gaelic is different from Scots Gaelic, but they're sister yeah. languages. So I think this, this applies across the board. But it was so beautiful speaking with him. And he had actually been a Catholic priest and then had become laicized and stepped out from the institutional church. He spoke about how in Irish, every sentence was a prayer. That was the mm. way he, he expressed it. And what I got from, you know, just from this one brief conversation I had with this person, as well as the little bit of Gaelic that I studied myself, is that in Gaelic, thought is structured differently mm -hmm. than in English. And I suppose you could say that about any language not just indigenous languages, but, but there's a certain, I guess, poignancy, poignancy it's, it does, that doesn't feel like the right word, but that's mm -hmm. what's coming, you know, that's what's gurgling up, kind of a poignancy with these languages that have been oppressed mm -hmm. and that, you know, there have been efforts to erase the language. So I'm, I'm curious in reclaiming your ancestral language, have you found that it has like expanded the way you relate to God, the way you yeah. experience God or encounter God. And, and given the poverty of English, is it possible for you to speak to that? Yeah. Yeah. English, <laughs> as my kids are learning, you know, they're going through school. So they're learning English words and that I get so mad for them. Cause I'm, you know, they'll learn like a spelling rule and then, and then that rule's worthless. Cause there's a bunch of sight words you should just know how to say. And I'm like, this is so stupid. You know, like it frustrates me so much. And then I think about other languages and, you know, so because like I said, we're not, you know, in Oklahoma, we, 
we do online language learning and so I don't have, you know, I don't speak my language regularly with people. I'm not in community with it, but yes, learning and doing my language course, I would do that some days before I wrote the book, before I would work on writing, I would do language because it grounded me learning a phrase or, you know, learning about the spirit path that we take when we die and knowing that there's something other than the heaven or hell that I grew up with and everything, everything just was widening what I understood to be ways of the spirit. So yeah, every new phrase is so remarkable to me and new because I didn't grow up with it. Um, but also just so horribly sad that, that so many of our languages get destroyed and taken from us. And we're taken through boarding schools and through assimilation and so many things, you know, that that's a, that's a true violent crime. So trying to study our language with, um, our kids, but also knowing that I, I can only learn so much on my own. Um, but sp in a spiritual sense, it has just awakened parts of me that I didn't know were sleeping. I think our words have action. So, so like even, you know, saying good morning, it's this action of the sun rising. And it's what does that mean for our souls? And what does it mean for us? We're the, uh, the people of the place of fire, Bodawadmi and Dao is the name of our, what our tribe name means. And so, you know, thinking about like we, we literally tended to fires when we lived in the Great Lakes, but now it's like even the the metaphor of how is my fire burning, having this idea of this flame inside of us that that gets really big sometimes and then it kind of quiets down sometimes and how is our fire burning and what is keeping us going, that kind of idea. So to be a writer and a poet and have this language that's just like coming alive all the time is a really beautiful thing. So I've I've been amazed at the depth. There is a lot to be unhopeful about. There is a lot of racism, a lot of misogyny, a lot of just brokenness that continues to be perpetuated and uh, pushed upon women, Native and ind Indigenous cultures, etc. And yet, I see people like yourself writing books. I hear your story. I hear other stories like this. Where do you find hope or wh where what's speaking to you a hopeful sign about the recovery of this voice and the unfolding of this path that you're gesturing towards here? Yeah. I end my book with the, the last few chapters of the book are about children and I did that because I wanted to end the book with this pushing them out to the next generation, you know, and um, you don't have to have children to believe in the next generation. We all should be caretakers of each other's children, no matter who we are. And the birth of my kids was, I think, what helped me start asking those hard questions. And they just teach me every day. They, you know, they're like our anchor to keep us humble and asking questions and being curious. And they just constantly are helping reorient me back to my child self, ask questions about her that maybe I haven't or recognize her trauma and like sit with that and be with her. And then just having this, I don't know, this beautiful openness of love toward others. So kids are just, I don't know, these beacons of hope, I think. And in general, I'm just not quite ready to give up on humans yet. I mean, we've done a lot. We've done a lot of crappy things, but the work of solidarity, I just love the the word solidarity. And just because I've, the moments when my 
when I feel like my fire is burning brightest is when I know that I've been able to collaborate and be in this oneness with others where we're just, doesn't matter what background we're from or what religion or what race we are or what beliefs we have, we are committed to loving one another and to moving forward with whatever we need to do to continue to love one another. And that gives me a lot of hope because we have to keep doing that because there's so many problems <laughs> and and if we're going to tackle any of them we have to just be committed to loving one another and to doing what we need to do to to continue those cycles of love on the earth and toward the earth and toward our kin whether they're humans or not and so i don't know i'm just um when things are really hard i look to those people and those children who are still doing the work and just have this essence of wanting to just be with one another. And it's not just constant doing, but it's just the presence of those people who just want to hold the space of love and care, you know, with each other and with others. Even online, you can feel you can feel that presence from certain people, even in really toxic online spaces. And I think I just gravitate toward those people. I'm constantly learning from them. So yeah, those are a few things. So Caitlin, do you have a silence hero, someone that embodies silence and the gift of silence to you, someone dead or alive, someone maybe you've never met or you have met that just embodies silence for you. I was going to say Robin Wall Kimmer, but then I talked about her too much before. You can say it again. <laughs> so just repeating her. You can have <laughs> once multiple. again, Robin Wall Kimmer. Yeah, Robin has because even I mean, I, I haven't met Robin yet, and I hope that we can meet one day at a tribal gathering and be together. But the way that she, um, teaches people to understand that the beings of the earth are alive and that they're real and they have, they have a life to them, you know, they're embodied. I think that that's a form of silence that we can enter into. That's really beautiful. Like I was saying earlier, it's not the just utter silence, but it's entering into spaces that we've not been listening as people. And I think we've not been listening for generations, if not centuries not been listening to the beings of the earth that are not human that are still speaking and have been speaking the waters and the rocks and, you know, and I think that she's taught me a lot about making sure that, and it's a, it's a kind of listening that we can't wrap our minds around. Cause even when I talk to my kids, one of them will be like, I don't hear, you know, they're not speaking English to me. Like they're not saying things. I'm like, yeah, but, but they are, you know, and that's like a, it's a really hard thing to wrap your brain around. And I think that that's why it teaches us so much. It's like this disconnecting from the ways that we have forced ourselves into not listening. So yeah, she has. And then, you know, I think why Richard Rohr's work is, has been important for me is because when I started learning about Franciscan theology, it was one of the first times where I thought maybe I can live within Christianity as long as it's something different than what I grew up with. And when I learned about Franciscan theology and St. Francis, who did stand against institutions and kind of that way of colonizing the way he believed about the creatures of the earth, I thought that was really beautiful and something I could understand. So getting to know Richard and, and teaching with him, I taught with him last year in New Mexico. And just being able to do that with him was really beautiful because we are very different and um, our ways of coming together and embracing silence and what it means to listen, you know, in such different ways. He's an older white man and 
I'm a younger indigenous woman. And it was just really great to be able to do that side by side and recognize that. And then uh, Mirabai Starr also taught with us, who's just an incredible teacher. And she's, she just teaches me all the time. I love her so much. I like how you name drop our, our former guests. So that makes me happy. (laughs) (laughs) We've had both of them on. And we and we love them too. So. <laughs> yeah, we're fan we're fans with of your of your choices. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, thank you for the books, both of them. Thank you for your voice and for being willing to spend time with us. This has just been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for your voice and you know your books and and for meeting you. You know, keep. I want to keep in touch and hear what you have to say. Native and indigenous voices are so important for me in my work and comparative stuff. So come visit us again. I will. Thank you. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.